Welcome to the Gone Jeepin Show with your hosts, Rick Payway and Tracy Clark. Grab your favorite beverage, kick back, put your feet up, and have a listen. Welcome to episode seven of the Gone Jeepin Show. I'm your host, Rick Payway. I'm your co-host, Tracy Clark. We've we've got kind of an action-packed uh, episode ahead. Yeah, we've got some cool stuff uh, we want to talk about, but wanted to say hi to our other members, Tyler Donaldson, Liam Lafferty, Chris Collard, and Greg Henderson here today. Everybody recovered That's from good. Moab. He did. From what? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not well, recovered. Surely. <laughs> I know ready to do it's more. Yeah, I finally got a good tan, a sandal tan on my feet, though. That was that was one of the happiest parts about Moab, you know? Finally wheeling in my sandals. Sun. Oh, love to be back there right now, but it's probably, what, 90 degrees? Uh, in Moab right now? No. Yeah. No. Old no. right now. Well, I figure I'm in Arizona and it's 90 degrees, so. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's finally warmed up to a, a balmy 44 here in Colorado. It's uh, about the same in Michigan. It's been snowing. So uh, let's see what the old weather forecast is from Moab and see if we should all be back there about now. We We've been getting to come out to uh, California where it's, I got the windows open. It's 70 degrees out. Doors open. It's a partly cloudy 57 in Moab right now, so I, I think uh, that's doable. Locations further west would be much more desirable. Yeah, but 57 in Michigan is like 78 here in Michigan. <clears throat> yeah, you guys do have a little bit different uh, weather out there. So, let's say I'm happy with Arizona. It's nice and dry. It's healthy. That's the best part. In fact, uh, we just talked about recovering and being healthy. Wanted to talk about the COVID impact on Moab. We were all there. We, I believe, it was about a, what, maybe a fifty percent mask rate among people wandering around. Would everybody agree with that? Um, well, at the at the show, uh, the expo, we probably only had about a ten percent rate of people walking around. And most of, the people, right. most of the people that had masks on um, at the expo were employees of companies who had a mask rule. Right. Plus, you're in a different county than uh, Moab is. Grand County, right. of course, is far uh, tighter with their restrictions. But even at that, I thought it was pretty amazing that everybody was doing, I think, their best to maintain their six feet or so distance. I mean, the whole thing was outside, which yep. I think was epically good. And even on our, on our uh, runs that we did, everybody stayed away from everybody. You know, there was an excessive uh, gathering. And overall, I'd say it came off pretty well, considering all the commotion there was in leading up to it. Leading up to it. Yeah, I, one thing that I really appreciated because of, you know, so many people are so used to the six foot, uh, you know, social distancing, it's almost completely eliminated close talkers. Mm -hmm. People are yeah. way too close. They don't do Mountain. it anymore, which is wonderful. 
<laughs> right. I, I mean, that's invading your personal space. And I've always disliked that to begin with. I mean, I like friends. I mean, be close, but not right there. And and I've always loved Purell. So, you know, this has been awesome opportunity for me. But uh, even going forward, I think that events like Moab, any regular one, will benefit from what we have all gone through and learned. And I, with the exception of maybe uh, the Mile High uh, event that uh, Tracy, you said they were not going to be having possibly, I, th I think um, it's all going to work out well. Currently, All for Fun is still up in the air, and this would have been their 55th as well. So they're trying to find a location within Colorado that will allow the large gatherings. And so far, that that's not in the works. Um, currently, the county that I live in in Colorado is the most restrictive because, well, we've got all the major ski areas here. So yeah. we've, we've had influx of people from out of state for spring break and things like that. So we still have some extremely active spike rates within COVID. So yeah. we're, we're still pretty restricted. I think, I think it'd be interesting to find out what the uh, rates are in Moab right now and in Grand County. Sure, haven't heard anything about it. I don't think there was any commotion, so I say that's pretty good. And as uh, Chris said, uh, California Association of Four Wheel Drive Clubs is putting on their Sierra Trek this year, which is what year is it, Chris? 50, 65th? Uh, I think it's like our 55th. Yeah. 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 Actually, and my club is long running the, events, right? And my club is one of the three clubs that started it back in uh, 1967, something like that. Yeah, yeah. before your day. Yes, before my day, I was alive. I just wasn't out on the trail. But you know, Jeepers Jamboree—they're—they, you know—they're moving forward. There's a lot of events around the country that are moving forward. I think everybody, as we are, is chomping at the bit to get out Absolutely. and get back to life. Yeah. Right, and I think that's one of the main things. Is it's not just going for wheeling. It's just it's getting out. And being with other people, you know, I've been yeah, one thing I was impressed about uh, during Easter Jeep Safari, um, you know, I, I arrived the week before, and even the weekend before Easter Jeep Safari technically starts, when you went into town, there were more people in town than I've seen in years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, there was there was there was a huge influx of people, but people were being safe, people were staying, you know, doing social distancing. People were wearing masks when they went into places, so it was it was really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I hope that's uh, what the future is going to bring. I, you know, they talk about a fourth wave and all that. Well, you know, let's see what happens. But uh, the quicker we can get back to wheeling and doing everything responsibly, as as like you did with out at the uh, vendor event, uh, I would say the expo went pretty well, didn't it? Yeah, the expo went really really well. Um, we don't have the final numbers in, but we do know that uh, well above 5,000 people came through the expo in the two days that it was running. Um, and we really didn't have any complaints. So uh, the next thing on my personal agenda is to reach out to the Red Rocks uh, four-wheelers and find out if you know there's a way that we can work together because we'd kind of like to continue to do the event, but at the same point, if they want to do the vendor show, then we don't want to fight them with it either. You know, mm -hmm. 
but yeah, I think it, I think it was a really, really good event and we had a great turnout. That's awesome. Okay. And for those of you that uh, aren't up to date on the Red Rock four wheeler vendor uh, show earlier in the week, that of course was canceled because it was in Grand County and that's when Dixie four wheel drive decided to do the offer of expo, which is just outside of all of them, just outside the County. So it actually worked out pretty well. Uh, one of the most interesting things I saw there was uh, a, a lot of the Bronco people were there. Yeah. Um, so Bronco came out with um, over 40 Broncos and they were doing uh, ride and drives with potential customers. Um, but that made it really, really fun because not only did Bronco show up, um, <clears throat> Jeep showed up with the brand new 392 and they were taking, uh, well, they had Mojave's and 392s and they were taking people for rides to show them um, all the new horsepower that that Jeep can handle. So it, it worked out really good. We had uh, total, um, there was, I don't know, 115 to 125 vendors. I don't remember the exact number. Uh, that were at the expo um for all intents and purposes it was my almost least fun trip i ever took to moab because uh, i stood in a parking lot for seven days instead of out on the trails um but i i think it worked really really well and you know we all got to get together so moab's still the, my favorite place on the planet even if i had to stand in a parking lot well so rick do you have yeah. do we know if uh we had any numbers back from Red Rock on attendance numbers? I mean, it seemed like uh, the numbers were lower than some of the like crazy years in the past, but it was actually kind of nice because, you know, if you wanted to go to a restaurant, there wasn't a four hour line to get in. And, uh, you know, it wasn't quite as congested. Kind of brought me back a few years, you know, maybe 10 years on the event. Yeah, overall numbers were lower in attendance for actual Easter Jeep Safari. Uh, there were a lot of rigs that were pulling through here the week prior, and there were a lot of rigs pulling through here the week after. So it, it kind of extended out to a three, maybe four week long event, people not wanting to deal with huge crowds. I mean, they're still going, but just not quite as in mass as and i noticed that same thing you know everybody was was talking about it on their forums and their, their social media and everything else how they were going early or they were going after so yeah it was more like a, a month-long event shall we say yeah which you know that that's good for moab because it it's steady in influx of money into the economy and you know the the trails aren't quite as crowded so I, I, think, I think we should move into Jeep Beat because we've got some mm. fun stuff we can talk about. We can talk about uh, the driving impressions for the 392 and all the other Moab concepts that you guys got to play with. Yeah, actually, the, uh, the 392 Hemi-powered Wrangler, for those of you that don't know, uh, was probably one of the highlights out there. It was when it was actually introduced. Now, remember, Chris and I had already put stuff up here on the gun jeep and was that back in november i believe it was when it was the first prototype when they said yes it's going to be real well now it is real yes it's 76 some thousand dollars 
but it is one kick in the pants to drive, and it's probably one of the most fun Jeeps that I've driven in quite some time. What do you think, Tracy? I'm in love, <laughs> and I I don't get excited about new vehicles, ever. I mean, it is what it is. They're never in my budget, and there have been two vehicles in the past three years that I have been extremely excited about. One was the Jeep Gladiator mm-hmm. and the 392. And yeah, I, would, <laughs> I agree. Now, if we could just combine those two and put the 392 in the Gladiator, I would be in heaven. Mm-hmm. I would get rid of, I'd almost get rid of Tater, but I definitely get rid of my Ram truck and and get a Hemi powered Gladiator because it would do everything that I needed to do. It would provide me with the V8 power to tow out of the valley that I live in because it's a minimum 10,000 foot elevation you have to cross to get out of here in any direction. And it would give me the bed of a pickup, not much smaller than what I currently have. I think the only size deduction would be bed height, but it, but I would get a convertible. Yeah. And you still have a convertible Jeep. Yeah. So. Well, and I'll tell you, I didn't get to drive a 392 yet. Um, but I did go for a ride in one with a professional driver who, um, sorry, but he shouldn't be driving. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think he almost killed the transmission trying to use the paddle shifters, but, um, you know, I've, I've had a lot of experience with Hemi-powered Jeeps. You know, I worked at AEV for a long time, and I've installed a lot of Hemis here in my shop. Um, I think in total, I've driven over 500 Hemi-powered JKs and JLs. Um, Chrysler or Stellantis Jeep, they did it right. That had the best tuning I've ever felt in a Jeep. Um, from launch to shifting to everything else, it was definitely a lot better than any of the aftermarket ones that I've driven. Um, so I can't wait to get the chance to drive one. Um, but yeah, they, they really knocked it out of the park. And the cool part is, is under that hood, that space is the same as a JL or a JT. So hopefully, mm-hmm. just like Tracy said, eventually they move that engine platform and maybe even the 5.7 over into the rest of the Jeep line, because that would be awesome. Go ahead, right. Chris. All right. Now, Tracy, you mentioned the Gladiator. Uh, if you recall, I had uh, a Gladiator Mojave for four or five days. We did some desert testing in it. And that was my one comment because they just killed it on the suspension on that vehicle. And my comment, you know, was, I mean, the, the 3.6, the Pentastar motor does fine. But um, I was just like, man, you guys got to put a Hemi in this thing. It would be one <laughs> badass desert machine. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing is, by that, by the time you had said that, you know that they probably already have somewhere in their little skunk works. And- yeah, I mean i I wasn't on the media drive. I I kind of got a a trade off for for letting somebody drive Tater and got a chance to drive the three ninety two. And I made the comment, and I'll just say that there there was a little smirk and a grin, but no words were exchanged so we can we can take that however we want to yes i think the official line is we always decline to comment on future uh, models (laughs) yeah 
Yeah. So and Chris, when when you drove it with me, what you what was your thoughts? I was, well, I mean, you know what I, I think. think. I love it. <laughs> I thought, let's get to share this with the rest of the crew. So we had our day. I mean, I started with um, me us on a long grade. I slowed down to about 40 miles an hour and just pinned the, the skinny pedal. And it hit VMAX like in a heartbeat. And VMAX is actually based on this maximum tire rating speed rather than what the vehicle could actually do. So we coasted through that up to the top of the hill. We went and did our whole day. But as we left, we, you know, Rick was driving. Remember, you were driving as we left and got back on the highway. And just from a dead start, he just penned it. And he, I don't know. We, we, I think we did the, the zero to 60 in, in, what is it, 4.5 seconds or something like that. Um, Easily. It was, yeah. And we were both just laugh. We just looked, we were like, as our back in the seat. Absolutely. And that's after a day of uh, an actual rock trail in Moab, going up stuff and crawling around and blasting down dirt rails, roads. So, so it wasn't just the raw acceleration of a Hemi powered Jeep. It's everything combined. I mean, they did such a great job on the tuning of the, front and rear suspension uh just like you said on the mojave chris that you drove you know that thing is not the same as a stock wrangler and, and a 392 wrangler isn't the same as a stock either there's a whole host of other things that they've done to the vehicle to make it what it is and you know one of those is of course the transfer case no longer has the four low on the rubicon and it has 373 gears instead of four tens the theory being that you have much bigger pistons doing their thing. So you have 470 foot pounds of torque or whatever it is. And that makes up for it. You don't need the four low. You don't need to put all that extra gearing in to uh, stress all the components. And overall, I would say it's a winning combination. I do have a question about that since you guys drove it. Uh, without the four low, are we going to see the same compression braking for descent control? No. And, and yeah, that was going to be my comment, Liam. Was oh, okay. Yeah, it was wow. like only uh, so it's the only place I found the shortfall. I mean, it's got more than enough for all of the slow rock crawling stuff. It's on um, breaking over an obstacle or the um, just compression braking going going down a steep a steep ledge or a, a steep hill is is it just doesn't have what the four to one transfer case would provide. Right, but remember, it also has downhill descent control. True. Is it the same? Absolutely not. But it works. If you've ever taken a big heavy vehicle with that system and just let it actually creep down, you go, I don't like it, but it works. And it works very well. So that's another reason what you give up for that. Tracy? In manual mode, though, it, since you can manually shift that transmission, is first gear low enough without the four to one transfer case? to make it more comfortable in a downhill descent. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Is it as good? Maybe not. Well, they could, step, they could step it up a big notch by throwing a stick shift behind the 392. Oh, oh that, that would be nice. Otherwise, you know, uh, our friends over to... a mortgage on my house for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure our friends at... at Advanced adapters will uh, have something in the works before too long for that. Absolutely. Maybe a Aruba crawler with that six to one. 
That, that's an interesting thought. And that's I, the other thing. Go ahead. I was going to say the, the only thing that I would change about the 392, and it's a very minor change, get rid of that good neighbor, bad neighbor button and let that baby rumble and roar the way she's meant to. That, that's all. You got a good point. For those that don't know, there's a button that looks like a pair of goggles. I don't know why they figured that out. You push it and it actually uh, hydraulically opens valves in the exhaust. So it sounds like a 392. And they call it good neighbor, bad neighbor. You don't like your neighbors? Make it loud. It's it's, it's a pretty trick item. It works really well. Yeah, yeah the goggles were pretty cool. The, uh, it actually, that button, uh, it's a pneumatically or a vacuum-operated solenoid on the muffler, which basically opens a gate in the muffler. So it's got, got what they call an active um, exhaust system. And, yeah, you can definitely annoy your neighbors, man. You can you put that button and you can hear it. It's just like... My motorcycle has the exact same thing in the exhaust. As soon as it gets above 4,000 RPM, it opens a butterfly and then it annoys everybody. Mm-hmm. And in the old day, they used to sell exhaust cutout kits where you could actually pull a cable, which would open a flap and they still cut out them. the exhaust before your muffler. Yeah, they yeah. probably still do. Yeah. Remember the days of heating up the glass packs and then sticking the hose with cold water in it and just blow them out? Absolutely. Or just slam them on the ground before you installed them. Well, that too, yeah. So anyway, that's the 392 in a nutshell. I think we all... I uh, think it's quite the vehicle. Yes, it's not cheap. And yes, they're going to be making, maybe we're hoping for some future plans on future Jeeps. I like the idea of the stick. Let's see who's the first one to do that. That's that's awesome. Any other comments on the poor 392? Yeah, I had one. I want to jump back into your comment on the suspension because we both drove and we both rode with each other through various sections of the, of the trail, whether it was, you know, Rick did an awesome job of just carving these big crescent sand dune turns and ripping around while I was taking pictures. Um, but like uh, on the twisty stuff, flat, high-speed drifts, um, and then one section where you were coming into a set of roller whoop de and I was like, whoa, 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 slow, slow, slow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we just like cut right through them. And Rick looks at me, he goes, man, that was a lot better than I thought it was. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you've all, we've all done that where you're coming up on a bump and it's too fast. You're going to do sky dirt, sky dirt, and there, things are not going to end up pretty. This sucker just went, like, it wasn't even there. It, it was quite impressive. Well, I, I was reading some uh, some comments from some of the Chrysler guys on some of the forums um, or Facebook. Um, and basically, it's a completely different spring tune. So, And a lot mm-hmm. of people who aren't really in depth in suspension and stuff. Um, if you look at like a Dodge Ram, there's 32 different front springs from one model Dodge Ram. And it's all depending on the loadout of the vehicle. Well, Jeep's the exact Correct. same way. So if you look at a Sport, a Sahara, a Rubicon, or the 392, they all have a different spring package. Um, and the 392, because it has a much heavier engine that's in a slightly different spot, um, which adds a couple hundred pounds over those front springs, they couldn't just lift it a little tiny bit. They actually had to engineer the spring for the vehicle. Um, and that's why they ride so good. Unlike some aftermarket, you know, people put a <clears throat> a replacement engine or a Hemi or something in their Jeep, and then they're like, oh, it doesn't ride great. 
Well, it's because you have a spring that's not designed for what you're driving. <clears throat> and when you have a tier one like Jeep building the vehicle, they're going to make sure that it's right. And the shock valving and everything else is going to be right. So the fact that Jeep is finally doing it just makes it, it tickles my innards. Well, absolutely. Some of the best things that I saw on the, on Facebook was some of the con contents from haters, obviously like, why do you, why do you need a V8 in the Jeep? What's the deal? <laughs> Just go drive. That's all I can say. Absolutely. And if you're not an automotive enthusiast, well, then you won't get it in. Why have people been putting V8s in Jeeps? Uh, well, I don't know, since the 40s. Because, we, because we're red-blooded Americans and we like it. <laughs> Be because our inner Tim Taylor's coming out, we want more power. Our, 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 our. So speaking of those things, what about some of the other concepts that you guys had a chance to mess around with Moab, like Magneto, which is the exact opposite of the 392 that, that is going to be available? Absolutely. In fact, if you're listening to this or looking at this video cast, you can see behind her head you got tater the original jeep and then magneto the bev which is a battery electric vehicle that's a full electric vehicle it's not a hybrid it's not something you just plug in at your charging station this thing is was an engineering it, was it magneto the one with the stick shift and that's the cool part about it they basically took out the the pedestar 3.6 and replaced it with a battery motor and inverter and cooling cans and all the stuff that goes with it that really doesn't matter because that's how it's done. And it has the same torque and horsepower as the original Pentastar. And the reason they did that was so that you could actually get a feel for how differently it drives, but they used a stick shift. So you actually have to push in the clutch and hit the button to start the motor. It is the motor. Remember, electric motors, gasoline engines. So we're, we're going to throw the terms back and forth here. But it's it's a stick shift. And you let out the clutch, and it doesn't go anywhere until you put your foot on the throttle pedal, not the gas pedal. It's the strangest scenario. It's so smooth because, of course, you don't have to slip the clutch because with electric motor, all the torque is there right on, right at the beginning. Now, they've tuned it, of course, so that you don't uh, step on the throttle and it just jumps away with all the torque. It's graduated. They thought about this, and that's why this is an engineering uh, prototype, shall we say, a concept. It's not a production vehicle. So you get it going and you shift again, just like you would shift any other uh, engine. And it's, yeah, because it's electric, almost any idiot can now drive a stick shift. <laughs> there you go. And, and, and Rick, so at uh, what RPM does it stall? <laughs> That's or the cool part. It doesn't stall. <laughs> you don't have to put in stall. the clutch to go up an obstacle or, or to shift. No. Yeah, you do have to put in the clutch to shift, but you don't have to worry about it stopping. So it's really, it's great concept. You and I took, Chris and I took it out uh, for an extended battery train, I'll call it, because we were out there longer than anybody else. 
Starting we get in trouble for that. Oh yeah, we yeah. are. <laughs> but of course, of course, you know, people say, "Well, what's the mo- fuel economy? What's the mileage? How long can it go?" All those questions are don't need to be answered because this is not what it is. It's a concept. They right. want to see how well they can put this thing together. And as far as four wheeling, it was great. Go right up to a cliff and just creep right up with no must, no fuss. And it was a lot quieter than that little diesel that you kept yelling at me to shut off. Absolutely. <laughs> Your it's, little clatter box. <laughs> it sounds yeah, so great. It sounds like a like, like a high performance uh, golf cart. Mm-hmm. It just oh. starts spinning up as you it'll sneak up on you like what what's behind me? And it's 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 a Wrangler, it's a Jeep. Uh, you know, and uh, no, it sounds like a, a golf cart. So what were your thoughts on the whole compression braking thing and like going up a hill and and stopping? Obviously there is no compression, so there's no compression braking. Uh, the way it worked out on this is I had to keep my foot on the throttle accelerator skinny pedal yes. to prevent myself from rolling backwards or prevent the Jeep from rolling backwards, which obviously is a little bit different way to drive. Uh, whereas compression braking, you know, when you're going downhill, same thing, it holds you back. There's no reason why you can't use regener- regenerative braking to do the same thing. It just wasn't in the cards on this initial prototype. I, I, I don't see that as a problem at all. In the Even future. The manual, being a manual transmission uphill, you know, it's the same thing as a manual transmission. Mm-hmm. It's not like an automatic's going to have, you know, it's going to can hold you back, hold you a little bit in place. Um, yeah, you but you have to have something there to hold back even a manual transmission. So That's true when you let the clutch out. Right, yeah. right, right. So... All the little electrons flying through that thing uh, need to be harnessed properly, but I see it as being a real forward-looking vehicle. I think this was it was an incredible concept. I can see that the future of four-wheeling can be changing as we talk and of jeeping. But you got to remember that we've all been driving uh, hybrids forever. Because what does what the battery do in your Jeep right now? Tater, for instance. If you got in it, pulled the coil wire off, left it in gear, and just cranked it, you'd be driving a hybrid electric vehicle. Or actually, pure, pure electric, because there wouldn't be any engine. And I think we've all done that before. So I drove my deuce and a half almost an eighth of a mile on the battery just to get absolutely. it off the road. And I've done the same thing with my with my flat. It's just to get it off the road. Just hit hit the crank, crank the starter, and hope it doesn't fry your cables before you get off the side of the road. So yeah, we've all been doing that for years, and now it's a thing. So we were green before green was green. How's that sound? So what was your favorite concept that was at Moab this year? I, I, I got a pot. The Chiefster. The Chiefster. Yeah. I think that's what they called it. It was basically a 68 Chiefster Commando that was done very nicely. As always, the Chief Design Team, Mark, Mark Allen and 
Christmas Catelli. They all do a great job. And this one was so pretty. It was done right. It wasn't supposed to be a monster rock crawler. In fact, it only had 35-inch tall tires. But it worked exceedingly well. It was beautiful. Uh, the attention to detail was incredible. And, of course, it was basically what he was say, just a Jeepster on a JL platform. You know, pretty, that's pretty simplistic, especially when you take a look at all the little details. Yeah, it's super simplistic. As as a builder who's known for blending old and new, um, mm-hmm. they knocked that out of the park. Yeah, Literally, the, 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 the things that they did, because it's not a skinny Jeepster, right? It's the same size. Right. So the amount of fabrication work and custom one-of-a-kind touches that were done to blend that Jeepster with a JL. Um, I mean, it just made me smile crawling all over it. It, it was done so impeccably well. Um, I give hats off to every man that touched that vehicle. It was so and nice. It looks, like it came out of, looks like it came out of your shop, Greg. No, I don't. I, don't, um, I mean, I could do that, but uh, my budget's never been that big. So... Um, <laughs> I, I do. Mark Allen and his entire team and the entire team over there that built that vehicle, my hat is completely off to them. They did a phenomenal job. Yeah. And you start looking at details on it and, you know, the center uh, horn button says Jeep, but it's in the vintage script. Yep. It's Just like the, the Jeep hubcaps. pads. Yeah. And all the hubcaps. Yeah. And the hubcaps, then, yeah. My, all of the, all most of the fun for me. Yeah, the badging, I mean, think very quick about the detail inside from like, I mean, just everything. There's this bright red. There's no top. You got a chrome roll cage, um, surfer stickers across the, you know, the dash and Mm -hmm. the little tiki god, you know, on the console. And I mean, the name was Jeep Beach. So the whole thing was set up like this tribute to, you know cruising down the beach in the 1960s with your board yep. on top and your girl by your side. It was cool. That was, yeah, that was, was. definitely my favorite as well. Yeah. And then uh, when you opened up the hood, you looked inside and sure enough, you know, it's a Pentastar V6, but there in the back was a dotless V6 emblem. So, you know, that they definitely thought about all the little details. So yeah, that was, that was my favorite. The others were really cool. Uh, don't get me wrong. But, my but second favorite concept was the YJL that Quadratech had. <laughs> <laughs> That's a large concept. Yeah. <laughs> YJL was a hit. Yeah. And, and, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you got all the obligatory. Why? <laughs> yeah. Well, wait till they see what we do next. It's, it's actually sitting right next to me. Well, just outside the door. And we're waiting for some of the parts to come up for stage two, but yeah, like I was thinking about that with the Jeepster, you know, this badge, which mm-hmm. they recreated for the hubcaps and the horn button. Um, if you really think about it, all the new Jeep owners in the last few years that have come about because of the JK and the JL and the the evolution of the Jeep brand, a vast majority of them don't even know what that is or what it came from. Yeah. yeah. You know, so so for Chrysler or for Jeep to integrate that into that concept just made me smile and they did such a they did really did a great job yeah and that that goes out to the entire design team and to Mopar too for pushing the envelope and coming up with that stuff 
even even the half doors on uh, orange peels were incredible. It's, it's, it's like having a two door vehicle with half doors. That's the right way to do it. Then yeah. they went as far as to take out all the glass except for the front. And in fact, does anybody know what Gorilla Glass is? Yes. Yeah, you do. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Jeep now has through Mopar aftermarket front windshield glass for JLs. And it's called Gorilla Glass and it's twice as tough. So if you've ever paid a few extra dollars to get your cheap windshield replaced, now you can get Gorilla Glass. So that was one of the things that was on Orange Field. That was cool. Yep. And and it had the uh, the removal of the glass top. That was cool. I like the removal mm-hmm. of the panels and the glass top yeah. on orange peels. But they had we had like a number of other cars out there. How about Top Dog? <laughs> top Dog, yeah. Go ahead, tell them about Top Dog. Oh, I kept calling it Hot Dog because it had this <laughs> in the back. It's got this great storage. Like they took the bed off, and I get this. It's gladiator base. They took the bed off. It's got this great storage facility in the back, but in that sort of storage facility is um, a refrigerator and this a hot dog roller barbecue. It's a hot dog roller. <laughs> a hot dog roller machine, like you'd find at a um, Love's truck stop or something. Yep. <laughs> and LED well, yeah, lighting. And that's why it was called hot water. dog instead of top dog. I I couldn't remember the name of it at the time, but I was like. <laughs> <laughs> that one was that one was cool, but you know, for in this whole craze of overlanding, you also had uh, far out. Mm-hmm. Far out yeah. was cool, and that's taken back from the the previous years way out, and then this is far out. Right. Yeah, and so that one was you know for the for the listeners that one was a gladiator based. Uh, it had this awesome habitat top um, topper they call it from uh, AT Overland. Um, all set up with like custom wood cabinets and LED strip lighting and uh, National Luna fridge and a stove and that slider system was uh, who was that from Goose Gear slider system for the stove so it was like it was set up for the extended hall and it had diesel. Yeah, yeah, it was fully decked out for overlanding. It was really a nice build as well. Yeah, I like that one a lot because as as we were going through the different concept, concepts that I was able to see anyway, um, that one I looked at and said, I could actually build this. You know, I can't afford to build it, but it's something that I could probably put together myself. And, right. you know, it's it's just a small enough habitat in the back where, you know, you're not going to be living in this thing. But, man, you go out for a weekend and, you know, me, wife, dog – Gosh, that'd be fun. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. And if you open that top, I don't know if you guys saw, but if you open that habitat top, it's like 16 foot long. It's got two like separate bedrooms for an apartment, one on one end for the kids and the other one for mom and dad. I mean, it's voluminous. Yeah. Pretty it's cool. It's a heck of a word to be used for a rooftop tent. Voluminous. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do believe that we are going to have uh, videos on each of the concepts coming up. So um, you guys will have to stay tuned to our YouTube channel and social media to see when those are going to drop. And I think we're going to go ahead and segue into lockers before light bars, our fan Q&A. We've got three questions this week. 
and they're all from Instagram. The first one is from KMJ underscore 153. Can a radial tire be mounted on a stock CJ2A wheel successfully? Any disadvantages of it, if possible? I'm trying to put new tires on my 2A and 700 by 16 tires with new tubes are just as much as 235 85R16s. I know that the radial is slightly taller. That's actually a really easy one. Yes. Okay. So you want me to expand? Okay. Yes. Of course you can put a radial tire on a stock. I'm assuming a stock CJ2A rim. Uh, one thing you have to make sure of that is that it's a four and a half inch wide rim. I believe that's the minimum size that most tire shops will put a, what was that? A 285? Yeah, an 85. 235, 85. 85. Right. If the tire is specified for a wider rim, like a six or a seven, like on a modern car, then many tire shops won't do it. But yes, it'll fit. Yes, it'll work. Just got to find the right tire shop. I don't see any disadvantage at all. Question number two, and this one's for Rick. It's from Mountain Biker Tridad from Instagram. What is the current status of the Ultimate M38A1 that you built for Ultimate Adventure back in 2001? That's an easy one. It still runs. It drives. It's the workhorse here on my uh, Jeep Rescue Ranch. I have a gin pole mounted on the front with a Horn 8274. And I lift up Jeeps and I lift up engines and I move it around. And it'll still go down the road that, you know, 90 miles an hour. It's still fully functional. does have a clutch problem. Uh, approximately five years ago, the clutch stuck, and I haven't fixed it yet. But since it has low gears, I drive it anyway. So, yep, it's still around, and it's going to be one of those projects. I'm going to get around to it. And if you anybody's got around to it that they can... <laughs> yeah, if anybody's got around to it, please send it to Rick Payway. Send it my way. All right, our our final question. This one's going to be pretty lengthy, and I think everybody gets to chime in on this one. Francisor20 from Instagram. I have a 98 TJ Sahara edition, four-liter automatic with a three-and-a-half-inch lift and 33-inch tires and 410 gears on stock axles. I'm curious on putting in a locker, but is it worth it on my stock axle? If so, which diff, front or rear? What kind of locker? I did listen to episode two and it was very informative, but I wanted to get a little bit more detail from my setup. We do mild trails. We flex the Jeep a little bit, but I wanted to be able to tackle more difficult obstacles. And I feel with a locker, I would have more confidence, but at the same time, is it worth it for my stock diff? The overall goal is I want to run the Rubicon Trail next year and I want to get my TJ dialed in. I feel the last piece is a locker, maybe just a rear or a front or both. Your opinion and advice is greatly appreciated. There are so many to choose from. Any help? And hopefully you can answer my question on the podcast. So I was thinking about that for a little bit. And um, my first advice is, yes, he doesn't have a very large tire. Um, He's got a 90, you know, a great little TJ. So I would, my recommendation would be, Put a locker in the front, do a selectable locker, um, whether it be air or electric, um, and put it in the front because 
just like a front wheel drive car, you know, the, the front drive tires tend to pull you over things. So if you're looking at, you know, slightly harder off-roading than you're doing now, the ability to pull the vehicle over uh, an obstacle is going to help you a lot. It's also going to help you get up onto slightly bigger obstacles, having the locker in the front. Um, would I necessarily change the axles? Probably not, not with that size tire. And they already seem to know what they're doing if they're already doing a lot of trails with it. Um, is it going to increase the chance of braking? Yes. If you've got your wheel turned all the way and you're giving it too much gas and you're doing something wrong, you still are going to have the ability to break something. Um, but as long as you treat it like you've always treated your Jeep and you're gentle and nice with it, just adding a locker to the front, I think would, in my opinion, be the way to go. Tyler, what do you think? Um, I totally agree. Now, didn't the 98 TJs in the Sahara package, wasn't the Dana 44 an option in the rear on those? In the rear, but not on the front. But not on the front. So if he's, if, I wish we had a little bit more information. If he's got the Dana 44 in the rear and he's only running 33-inch tires, he's got the setup he needs right now. Dana 30 in the front, Dana 44 in the rear, those 33-inch tires. If he's only got the budget to do one locker, I'm with Greg. Put a selectable in the front, um, especially if he's got a Dana 35 in the rear. I would put a selectable locker in the front. I would not put a locker in that rear Dana 35 for two reasons. It's a big pile of crap. And second, because if he breaks an axle shaft in that Dana 35 on the Rubicon, it's a C-clip style axle and the wheel and the shaft will go right out the side of the housing and it'll be hosed. Um, the Dana 30, like all front axles, is a full float axle. So if he does happen to break a shaft on the Dana 30, the, the tires are still going to stay on. Now on the Rubicon, he's going to be in for some fun to try and get out of the Rubicon with a broken shaft, I'd take spares. But yeah, uh, assuming that the rear is a Dana 35, I would definitely put a, a selectable locker in the front. Um, I ran a selectable locker in the front with a winch for several years on my YJ and did some nasty, nasty trails um, and was was able to do anything that I really wanted to do with that, with the 33 inch tall tires. So um, if the budget's there and it's a Dana 44, put a lunchbox locker in the rear, selectable in the front, and you'll be golden. Hey, Tracy, what do you think? I have no opinion on this because, I mean, if the budget's there, I, I would make sure that, you know, there are at least 44s on both ends, but that's me. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. When I in doubt, upgrade the axles. Chris? Yeah, so I agree with um, part of what Tyler said and what a part of what Greg said. Um, you got to find out what you've got in the in the back. Um, obviously, if it's forty four, that's great. Um, I'm a fan of rear lockers, um, but again, the thirty five has challenges. That, but in the front, you've got a thirty. Um, you've got four ten gears. That means your ring, your pinion gear is about an inch and three eighths in diameter because um, the differential's got like a. 7.1 inch ring gear. Um, and when you put a full locker, a true locker in any front end, um, it puts any axle, but basically specifically to the front, it puts a lot of load on the knuckle and the U joints on everything up there, the pinion gears. Pinion gears get really small 
and they really want to try to walk away from the ring gear. I mean, you've got 10 teeth to 41 on the, on the, on the ring gear. Um, and what Greg said, you know, full deflection on turns and being very gentle on that front end. You're, if you start popping that thing, something's going to give, it's going to be diffused. And like Tyler said, bring some spare axles. And, I, you know, that, that's the bottom line is that it's not an exceptionally large ring gear to begin with. Um, so your pinion is smaller, especially when you start playing with the, um, the ratios. Mm-hmm. So. All right, Liam. Yeah, I'm going to approach this from a little bit of a different angle. Um, I'm going to use cost as the main deciding factor. So um, for example, let's talk about my Jeep for a minute. I, I have a YJ, I have 31s. And the way I went about my axles is just about every way you shouldn't do it. Um, I have the Dana 35 in the rear. And then I paid a shop to put in 410 gears uh, because the automatic didn't come with 410 gears, the four cylinder and, um, and a Torsen locker in the rear. Now the Torsen, I'll stand by it. That thing is sweet. Um, It works really, really well. It rides really well down the road uh, because I'll daily drive my Jeep. Well, we went to Moab and then I turned around, drove it seven hours, uh, dropped off at Rick's house and it did great. Um, it drove just as well on the road as it did on the trails. And that's nice. But the reason why I say I did it wrong is because one, I kept the Dana 35. Um, if I, and I put way too much money in it, paying a shop to, to do that costs money. You're paying for labor. And I put more money in my axles than the Jeep is worth. And it, it still hurts to know that. Um, and so from a financial standpoint, I'm actually going to say I would almost always, um, swap out the axles, not because you're going for more strength, but because a lot of times people on Facebook marketplace are like, Hey, I have a Dana 44. I put lockers in it. I upgraded to sixties and I'm selling it for a fraction of the price. Um, so I would look for deals like that because that to me is, is way more cost effective now you're always running a gamble when you're buying used parts, um, but it depends on what your budget is. Cause I, like on, on my channel, we're talking about budgets of, man, I have to get this thing running in the morning. I have $10 in my pocket. What do I do? That's, that's my perspective um, on these things. So if I can go on Craigslist or Facebook marketplace and find a set of axles that are going to do the job, if they're the same strength or even a little bit stronger that already have the lockers in them, or maybe they got the gears in them that you want, um, always search for deals first because you can use that money for a winch or something else. Well, that's a good point. And I think uh, all of us, well, I haven't said what I've done yet, but I agree with all of you. Very good points, especially when it comes to the 35. I'm going to say he has a 35 because he says stock axle. If he had a 44, he'd probably know it. Like it was mentioned, yeah, we need a little bit more information. But I would not, it pains me to say it, but I would not pay to do it like William did and put in a locker in a 35, which is going to break an axle shaft, even if you get alloy shafts and have it slide out on some terrible trail. I would definitely at least upgrade to a 44 with a lunchbox locker. Yeah, it's selectable in the front, but I'm with Chris. I'd rather go with the rear locker first. And agreed, Tracy's right. 44 is front and rear. So there you have it. Thank you, Francisco 20. Is that how you say that? <laughs> I believe so. And as Rick said, listen to your mother. Upgrade your axles. When in doubt. If it's in the budget, 
44 is front and rear. All and, right. do, and just caution, do not do the Rubicon Trail without lockers. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. We're going to transition into Willie's versus Wrangler and Rick against everybody else. Topic today is restoration versus modification. When do you need to restore or modify? Or is there such a thing as when? And that's a hard one. It usually, you look at it, at least I try to look at it from a holistic view. How does that sound? In other words, if I've got myself... How many holes are in it? How many holes are in it? (laughs) If it's a rust bucket, maybe it is not a good candidate for restoration and you should be modifying it. Yet then you have all the internet trolls and rivet counters and purists who say, well, you should never take a World War II Jeep and modify it. It has to be stocked with the stars and the bars and everything else. And Here's the bottom line rule. It's your Jeep. Do what you want to with it. And just because it's rare doesn't mean it's more valuable than something else. Hey, my Jeep, the dash is worth more than anything else. That's because everybody that's anybody has signed it, right? Exactly. <laughs> so if you look at look at the Jeep behind Tracy, it's a flat fender, and it is not stock in any way, shape, or form, except it's 100% stock. It's just a mismatch on different Jeeps. Fine. That's probably something that, although it can't be restored, because it's, I think that about anything can be restored. But it wouldn't be a good candidate for restoration, but it would be a great candidate for modification. And then you look at Liam's YJ behind him. Well, I, Why I'm going to jump. Want to restore that? I I want to jump in here. I'm I'm not. I'm going to add another category in here. Preservation. My Jeep should be okay. preserved in the way in which it is. It may not be all stock. There are no numbers matching, but its appearance should be preserved the way that it is. Right. And and I agree. Preservation, or I like to call it conservation. That yours should be that exactly what it is. The one behind uh, Chris, the uh, Expedition de las Americas, should be kept virtually identical to what it is because it is a survivor. That's a good one for conservation. Again, to Liam's, well, it's a YJ, and someday they're going to be worth millions of dollars, and everybody will want to have a concourse example of it. Well, probably not. So it's an ideal Jeep for modification, which is exactly what you're doing, Liam. I mean, oh yeah, putting a turbo <laughs> on there. It's just it's brilliant. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's no turbo. That's uh, Our, that's a supercharger. Supercharger. Yeah, it's the yeah, it's whole brilliant. other thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the ideal platform when, okay, here's the old man thing. When I was your age, the vehicle behind me was my flat fender and no one cared about a 20 year old flat fender. So I could take it and modify it and ended up with a V6 and all this. And did I ruin the historical value of a World War II Jeep? Probably, probably. But as we age and as vehicles age, I mean, how many XJs are there, Tyler, that are perfect Conqueror's restorations? Yeah, no. and, and how many do you have, right? 
Uh, well, I came home from Moab with one more than I had before. So I don't know. I'm up to seven. There you or go. Eight. I got okay. piles of them. So conservation, preservation versus restoration or modification. I think they all have their parts. And I think we're all in the same boat. Uh, Chris, you also have a flat fender that there's not much point in restoring that. And remember, when I say restore, that means restore all the way. Uh, not a quick coat of paint or anything else. No, or but look it, at, look at, if you look at our, our YouTube channel and look at it, a couple of the first videos that we put up that Liam did with Brandon Germis. Now, mm-hmm. Brandon's two Jeeps are restorations. Those are and good restorations. You're Very good restorations. And that is, in my mind, what a restoration is. Your Jeep is conservation, uh, preservation. Uh, Liam's modification. Chris, yeah, no, you leave that one alone. Greg, you're going to build something cool and wild out of that pile of parts. And, and Tyler, you've got an XJ farm going, buddy. <laughs> well, I also, uh, you know, I've got a 1942 GPW, and I bought it with the intention of doing a restoration. And as I started to tear it down and get the frame off and the body off, it has been so cut up over the years. Somebody cut up the fenders to fit a bench seat in it. The floor pan's been all cut up and modified. The front cross member on the frame's been cut out. And, and of course, the front frame horns have been fixed. And I'm missing a toolbox lid. I just, as, as I got deeper and deeper into the restoration, it became obvious that this was just not a good candidate. And so it's actually going to end up being a modification. I'm going to turn it into a rock crawler. Now, at some point, I want to restore either an MB or a GPW because I, I want one in original running condition. I, they're just cool. Yeah, like Brandon's. Yeah, like Brandon's, exactly. But mm-hmm. this one, you know, sometimes it just costs more than it comes to. And there comes a point where some are just not good candidates for restoration. And so take another route, you know, there's no reason you can't have two as I have aptly demonstrated. <laughs> you can't have more than one. Or 12. And, you know, or, seven, or 18, 19, 18, 18, I think. Yeah. And, and my opinion is just like how Rick very first started out. Um, it's your vehicle. Do what you want with it. I don't, to me, I don't care if you went out and bought a, fully restored rotisserie style, 100 port Concord D'Elegance 1942 GPW. If it's yours, do whatever you want with it. If you wanna cut it up and turn it into something different, uh, there's a lot of people that aren't gonna like it, but so what, it's yours. It's um, America. Right, if, if you go, look at how many people go out and buy a brand new JL tomorrow. Think of the amount of people that are buying a brand new 392 and the first thing they're gonna do is start modifying it even though at some point it could be a collector car, just like a demon was a couple of years ago. People bought them and modified them. Who cares? If you own it, do whatever you want with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw a post that a friend of mine put on. He goes, I love getting them when they have 20 miles on them. They've got a jail in their shop that they're getting ready to rip the suspension out of and lift. They're going to rip the motor out of it and it's getting a 6.4 Hemi. And it's only got 20 miles on it. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, Rick, I got a question for you. <clears throat> sure. So, on the expedition to Las Americas, CJ behind me, on the conservation versus preservation question, like if I start pulling the axles out, going through them, even say pull the frame off and just do a restoration of the, all of the running gear and the frame, is it okay to paint everything or powder coat it, the frame? while I'm in that process, rather than leaving it the dirt and grunge and scrapes that are on and not messing with the body. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Man, I'd say if you Powered lived here, this. <laughs> if no, you so lived there's here, a, there's a difference. <laughs> no. All right. Painting. Yeah. Paint's fine. Don't powder coat it. Just, oh my God. No. Uh, powder coating is great for what it is. But on a Jeep like yours, my opinion is you'll be destroying a lot of the authenticity of that vehicle. If you had a cracked, broken, rusted, rotted out frame, then maybe, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Something has to be done. But if it's still yeah, there, it's a, a safety it's not issue. broken, right. But if it's not broken, why fix it? And Obviously, it if the strings are sad and they no longer function, you're going to have to fix that. Oh, and you'll need new rubber bushings. But that's, to me, where the difference is, too. I wouldn't upgrade to polyurethane bushings if you didn't have to. They didn't back then. You don't need it now. Interesting note is on your rear axle, it's an AMC 20 axle, which is obviously what it's supposed to be, but there aren't stock axle shafts in there. Right. Those are aftermarket flanged one-piece axles. So the question is... Which are good, but the question is, was that a period correct modification? Then leave them. Or if it's a safety issue, because yeah, the stock one will go out on you when you go on some long trip somewhere, then you should change that too. And well, obviously, those, act things, hmm? those axles were um, actually replaced after the Darien Gap because that's where they broke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's why they put one piece axles in. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yes, I would say that would be fine with those axles, but should you put in a brand new aftermarket Dana's 60, whatever axle no, no. assembly there? No. no, no. I'm just asking about paint, man. <laughs> I would, so, so Chris, my, so it, it goes like this. It snowballs, <laughs> even, even in California or Arizona, <laughs> you start yeah. off with this next thing, you know, your entire Jeep's. Oh, wait, I guess I've done that. Not going there, Rick. Good. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah. Right. Off what you need to. I, I go the same way as Rick um, on some, some of bits. I think, you know, you pull the body off and you mechanically restore what's underneath and make it mechanically sound using the correct yeah. part, you know, rubber bushings and blah, blah, blah. But definitely do paint steer so far away from powder coat that it's not funny for two reasons. One, um, Powder coat doesn't hold up well if you're going to use the vehicle. So powder coat's great for hot rods and classic cars and even some aspects of jeeping. But when you're talking about frame and axles, powder coat is essentially a big plastic condom that goes over your steel. So if you get <laughs> way over here, it can start to rust way over here. It's, you know, because the moisture can get in, follow along the steel to a different spot. 
So powder coat, I steer way away from for something that you're going to actually use. And after being on the trail with you in Moab, I think you're going to use it to show it off and let a million people see that vehicle. Um, so yeah, restore it properly, but steer away from powder coat. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, powder coat's great for lawn furniture and stuff like that, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if I can, okay. you guys are okay oh. with paint. Paint's good. Paint's paint good. is okay. All right. Yes, William. Yeah, if I can jump in from experience, uh, truck bed liner and Bondo are really good ways to make it rust out really fast. Um, as Tyler said when he saw my Jeep, "Wow, I cannot believe how much rust is on this thing," um, and and or metal is not. Uh, but kind of going back to the original question of the restoration versus modification, um, and Tracy kind of said it, look at our YouTube videos because we have this lockers before light bars uh, playlist. And, you know, I've, of course, I, I've done like half of them. So I, I love that playlist. But um, each one of those Jeeps that we've done, we had, we started with Brandon's Jeeps and we've got a, a V10 um, M715, which is. Yeah, which is really cool. Uh, we've got Jeeps that have wildly different powertrains all the way to Brandon's, which are restoration. But I ask everyone the same exact question in all those videos. And it's what about this Jeep makes it yours? And what's interesting is I don't walk up to guys with Honda Civics and go, what about your Civic makes it yours? Because I don't want them to go, well, I bought it. <laughs> I drove well, it to work. It's the sound of power exhaust that they put on. So they sound like the this mad swarm of hornets driving. Right, uh -huh. right. It sounds like a fart and that's why it's mine. No, um, when it comes to Jeeps, there's something about one. They're such a good platform for aftermarket. They're such a good platform for modifications, which is great for the, the modification segment. Um, but also they have a personality and the community as a whole. And this dog is loud. Hold on. The community as a whole has such a good personality around Jeeps. And when I ask that question, I get all sorts of really cool answers. You know, it was my dad's Jeep. Um, this Jeep fought in a war uh, or it, my grandpa, well, the, the M715, his grandfather drove transport trucks in Vietnam. And that was something that he wanted to kind of replicate, but with a, a different flair. Um, but then even back to Brandon, and that was the first video I did like that. And his answer is still my favorite because he has this Jeep that, gosh, dang it, dog. Anyway, he has this Jeep that he has restored so beautifully and he did such a good job at making sure things were period correct. And then when I asked him what makes it yours, he pointed to the numbers and he said, this is the date that I first drove it. And it was still within the, the range of what would have been correct serial number for that year of G. And so he was able to, to keep it and be really rigorous about the restoration while putting in the first day he drove that G. And that's still my favorite uh, to this day uh, answer to that question. But, you know, restoration, modification, like Rick, Greg said, it's your Jeep. And what makes it yours? Mm -hmm. And just because we'll cringe over somebody else's decision, it's their decision. And believe me, I've cringed before. But that's how it is. It's America, and we move on. So I think that's pretty much it on modification versus preservation versus Are you, are you going to finish 
Are you going to cringe the first time you see an angry grill on a Bronco? Not at all. They belong there. (laughs) Better yet, a grumper on it. Hide that ugly face. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's segue into toolbox talk. This week, one more thing, Tracy. Before we jump into that, we're talking about retro stuff. Anybody notice this hat? Yes, I did. <laughs> so I'm going to talk, so I come on the main screen. It's Rancho. Does that look old to you? It does. It's like original vintage 70s Rancho hat. Cool. And where'd you get it? Well, Rancho's been around a long time, right? And uh, they are proud of their heritage, and they actually just remade a batch of these hats. So I talked to... Uh, yeah, I talked to Chris at Tenneco at uh, actually during the barbecue that um, everybody had there at the end of the end of the week, and he sent me this hat, and I'm just loving it because I had Rancho shocks. Like, oh yeah, I don't know. My first set of shocks was a you know Rancho shock, so I, uh, I still know. have Rancho shocks with that logo on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember, they were white. They're red and white and blue. They had the blue on the bottom of them. So yeah. Yep. Anyway, sorry, Tracy. Continue nope. on. No worries. Um, Yeah, we're going to go into toolbox talk and toolkits. What to bring, what to leave at home, and do you really need 200 pounds of tools in the back of your Jeep? Rick. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I'll tell you what. I have about 200 pounds of tools. They're in two bags. I believe I have, I know that in the old days, I had every tool necessary to rebuild my Jeep from stem to stern. Even now, I I didn't have piston ring compressors. However, I could still, with some of the stuff in there, I could compress piston rings and make it work. So I'm a proponent of being prepared. It's Boy Scout. I feel, yes, you got to have every normal tool. And every specialty tool for your vehicle. For instance, I don't carry a six lug spindle nut socket for certain Chevy trucks because that's not what I'm driving. And I don't carry some oddball things. But a BFH, you bet I do. Regular collection of screwdrivers, hammers, a puller. Yes, I carry a Willie's rear wheel hub puller when I go on expeditions where I may be picking up a Willys. So can you overload on tools? Yeah. And I have seen guys with metal tool chests mounted in the back of their truck and every single thing is there, every snap on this, that, and everything. I don't believe that. I do believe in bringing everything that you're going to need. Next. What Rick said. Or do you all agree with me? Yes. Okay. I, Next. I totally agree with you, Rick. I'm I'm a tool guy, and I just I always want to be able to manage any repair that you need to take care of on the trail. It's like you know you're down in the middle of Baja or up on the Rubicon or wherever, and it may be your vehicle, but more often times than not, it's actually on somebody else's. And they're like, "Hey, do you have a um, you know?" And I, I break those yeah. into yeah. Um, I break my tools into three categories. Basically, you got your basic hand tools, you got specialty tools, which are just like you said, Rick, they're the specialty tools for your vehicle 
And people need to know what those are. So if you don't, mm -hmm. read the forums, find out what um, you know what it takes to what kind of snap ring pliers or, or seat clip pliers you need to pull your front axle out or um, delve into deeper parts of your vehicle. Um, so the specialty tools. And then the last one is the mobile fab shot. It's like when you rip a spring, you know, a, a, a shackle off of the frame or somebody else does, do you have the ability to fix that? You know, do you have, um, I love, I love like DeWalt power tools. So 12 volt, you know, grinder, right. you know, cut off wheel and drill and a welder, you know, whether it's a premier or a couple of batteries with jumpers. Yeah. And I carry all that as well. So Tyler. Well, well it's, it's interesting. When I started wheeling, I carried everything because I didn't know what I would need. And then I started to pare that down a little bit. And then the more wheeling that I did, you know, we went on a trip and a guy blew an O-ring in his power steering pump and he had 40 hydro assist with 40 inch front tires and he couldn't steer them because of an O-ring. Nobody in our convoy had an O-ring. So now I throw in just a little bag of, Miscellaneous O-rings, right? Mm -hmm. um, things like that, you know, snap ring pliers. We had a guy that had a, a front Dana 44, and he he blew a U-joint, a, a and it took the ears off the shaft. Well, the Ford hub is completely different than the Jeep hub, but we, had, we needed snap ring pliers. We didn't have snap ring pliers, so I throw in a set of snap ring pliers. You know, um, mm -hmm. I carry... I carry little pieces of uh, of pressure hose and brake line, and I have a brake flaring toolkit. I mean, stuff that, but you know, I carried that for a while. Now I just carry vice grips that I can clamp the brake line. <laughs> so, Absolutely. You know, as as you wheel and stuff, and and it depends on a couple of things. Are you going on an expedition? That's a completely different loadout than if I'm going to go do Hell's Revenge. That's 10 minutes from Moab and a, and a million parts stores. Right. Am I right. um, going to be a long way from help unsupported? That determines what I'm going to bring. How technical is the trail going to be? Do I anticipate really technical rock crawling stuff that can break U joints and axle shafts and things like that? That really, you know, this year at Moab, we, we took that little flat fender. I knew I wasn't going to be doing any super technical trails. So I took very basic hand tools. I didn't take nearly the amount of tools I normally do. Um, so it, the best thing I can say is, is have a list, just like a backpacking list or a camping list or a whatever list, have a tool list. And when you go wheeling and you needed a tool and it wasn't there, you add it to the list. Mm -hmm. If you've gone on 16 trips and not needed a tool or figured out that you can use another tool as a replacement, maybe consider taking that off the list. Right. For instance, you don't need every single type of Phillips wrench made. Yeah. From right. this long to that long and number one to three. But you but, may need an Allen wrench set, so you better have that. Yeah, and, and you better have a whole bunch of socket extensions if you have to replace a, a crank position mm -hmm. sensor on an XJ on the Rubicon. <laughs> That's right. And these are the things that we learn as we go along and the more experienced you yeah. get. And like 
like you said, finally you get to the point of experience where I haven't used that in 16 trips. And if it, if I do need that tool, I can actually make it by putting two tools together, sort of like a wrench on a wrench for leverage and things like that. And I, I guess so, what spares you carry and what tools you carry are probably two different conversations, but there are some spares that oh, I, totally, I totally different. <laughs> I always carry yeah. <laughs> a, a precision sensor, but anyways. Right. Whereas with a flat fender with, with Tater, we're never going to carry a crank position right. sensor. But yeah. we sure should have an extra fuel filter, which you're never going to carry on some modern fuel injected vehicle, but you can't even get to the fuel filter. So, Tracy, what are you carrying in your Jeep? Duct tape, bailing wire, bubble gum, and a Leatherman. No zip ties? <laughs> Duct tape can <laughs> double. That's right. And, yes, your, your story about the uh, O-ring, no one had an O-ring. I had to make an O-ring once out of, for a same thing, power steering failure on one of my Jeeps. And I made it out of a roll of regular electrical tape, but I did lengthwise and rolled it up to the right diameter. And scarily, I think it may still be in there. <laughs> hey, <laughs> That's I, a whole other I, conversation. I, I remember a trip and it wasn't in a Jeep. I was on my way to the dog show. I was living north of Phoenix at the time and blew a fan belt near Picacho Peak and still had to get to Tucson. I sacrificed my nylons. There you go. They make a perfect, perfect replacement emergency fan belt. Now, I'm not saying I wear nylons, but yeah, <laughs> I do carry some in my spare parts bag for that very same reason. Yeah, they work. I remember a trip that Rick and I had borrowed a Jeep. We, we went out to Hump and Bump because Ruby had an epic failure. And we fixed an overflow tank with duct tape mm -hmm. and bubble gum. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then those, I annoyed the trail fixes that we need to actually do an entire episode on some of our favorite trail fixes. That should be something we, we can look forward to. Can Absolutely. Put that on the list. Yeah. yeah. No, no leather belts, though. Yeah. Yeah. You, you we'll still talk about that, that fix. So, when we get to that subject, Tracy, remind me to share the story about um, one of these uh, expedition Jeeps in the Andes with uh, vapor lock issues, and the only tool I had was my Leatherman. Way there back in the day. Garrett, you're both packing Leathermans. Yeah, way yeah. back in the day, in the glove box of everything that was carbureted, I always carried a wooden clothespin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and who doesn't know what it's for? Liam. Awesome. Tyler doesn't know what it's for. Did well, you say a wooden what? Kind of a wooden clothespin. A yeah. wooden clothespin. Oh. Remember, she said carbureted engine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Nothing, Liam? All right, tech tip of the day. <laughs> you sound hokey, but that wooden clothespin goes over the metal fuel line and it acts as a heat sink to help prevent vapor lock. What? Why would it? <laughs> it does. It works. Don't know why. 
but it works. And probably something to do with just like on dowsing rods. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> dowsing rods. Yeah. They work. Don't know why. Or do they? <laughs> uh, all right. Should we move on? We should. Uh, we're going to end this segment with Trailside. The overlanding obsession, we used to call it car camping. So what gives? Uh, we don't drive cars anymore. <laughs> so what's that? All right. So for those of you that don't know, Chris Collard had uh, many, many illustrious careers, but one of them was editor of Overland Journal. So I think he may be the one to spout off on, on this since that was your specialty for many years. How many? Uh, I was an editor for seven years. Yeah. Seven years. Yeah. And, it, you know, it was a great a great chapter. Um, you know, personally, and we all used to call it car camping, you know, or just jeeping and camping. Uh, and, you know, the overland, the term overland has been around for a long time. Uh, um, yeah, like overland? Years from going back to the camel caravans of Timbuktu, they were, they would do an overland trek, you know, from uh, Morocco to Timbuktu and back. Um, but well, the and then there was the overland stage company way back oh, in the old west days mm -hmm. definitely not new but the term has has you know come to uh maturity with the four-wheel drive crowd um honestly if you look back at the stuff that i wrote um there were a few words that i used one of them expedition i reserved for nothing but the most ends of the earth type projects um the term overland though Somebody asked me about Overland at a gathering, and I said, you know, it, it's not about how long you go or how far you go. It's a mindset. And it's the mindset that when you come to the, a fork in the road, take it. Left, right. If you talk, stop and talk to somebody, and they're like, oh, you know what? You should go check out this uh, hot spring up here, or there's wild Mustangs up in this mountain, or there's a great cantina down on the beach where you can get a cold uh, margarita or mojita. It's having a, you know, it's a more of a mindset of of being willing not to be on the rigid path. You know, and that's that's kind of the way I look at it. I mean, overlanding is. You know, people can do it for a day or a weekend. You don't go expeditioning for a day or a weekend, so to speak. I've heard people say that, and I always laughed. Um, but to me, it's more of a mindset. Yeah, well, sometimes it is an expedition just to get to the store. And it could be. <laughs> but as a general rule, not. So Depends yeah. on how many times you had to take your toolbox out, Rick. <laughs> exactly or make o-rings you know? yeah for so, for me an expedition is when i go out and fire up the ford in, in the yard because it's an expedition oh, the expedition <laughs> yeah but i'd like to hear what everybody else that what your thoughts are on you know the overlanding craze there you go Okay, I, well, I'm going to oh, take kind of a, a a negative turn here because to me overlanding is targeting a higher income bracket. You know, it's I, more cost, it costs getting, money for an ARB fridge. Yeah, you know, overlanding versus camping for me. Camping 
anybody can do it with with you know their used Coleman stove and their little lantern and you grab a a tent from Goodwill and an old sleeping bag or a comforter off the couch and you go overlanding you've got to have all the newest latest and greatest tech toys because everything is all tech related that I've seen anyway um you got to have khaki a lot of khaki <laughs> you're, you're, going, you're going overlanding lifestyle and, and yeah and yeah you you see that everywhere uh back back in the day of to another old man story uh when they first had the hummers come out each you know regular full-size uh from gm not not the military one we we're out at moab and they were having them out there and sure enough here, here were all these old dirtbag jeepers like me and Ned and everybody else, kind of crusty from living in our jeeps for weeks. And these guys come out with their hundred thousand dollar Hummer and get out. And guess what? They were dressed in khaki too because they didn't know anything other than go go down to the local Cabela's and outfit or R- no REI. Yeah, <laughs> for REI, I think. But yeah, that's the the mindset of the entire not movement, but a lot of that culture, whereas if you go in reality, it did start like Chris said, people going out and actually going overland, going on an extended trip, uh, whether they had money or not. Nowadays, it's such an awesome industry. Yeah, sometimes we make fun of some of, some of their over-the-top stuff, like who needs really needs a rooftop tent, right? There's no zebras or or lions or tigers running around out in the uh, California desert. But, you know, most people are driving around with them on top of your vehicle. And it's been a very lucrative uh, industry for a lot of people. Yes, Chris? Yes, I have a rooftop tent on top of my truck, <laughs> my rig. <laughs> yes, you do. When was the last it. time you slept in it? Uh, two nights ago. <laughs> <laughs> and what were you doing? Were you overlanding? I was just out in the Nevada desert with my dad at one of our old dirt bike camps. There you go. That's an awesome thing. And I think that's one thing that, at least for me, I have to remember that just the word overlanding can sometimes have negative negative connotations. Tracy, I understand completely what you say. You know, people that don't know anything, they just like the lifestyle and wear khaki and think they know anything, everything. Whereas some people like, you know, Dan Greck, you know, he went across Africa in a Jeep. You know, that was pretty much overlanding. And all these people that actually do stuff, and all of us that are overlanding, we just used to call it car camping in the back of Cherokee or an XJ or yes, Liam. Yeah, so I guess I always kind of I had a different perspective of overlanding. Well, I guess mine was probably more similar to Tracy's. Um, especially in the beginning, because so I grew up in Iowa. And if you haven't been through Iowa, one, there's a lot of corn, but two, the majority of the land is owned by people, not the state. So the whole idea of, oh, I'm going to go on state land and drive for more than five minutes was just completely (laughs) foreign to me. I mean, any of the off-roading that my Jeep saw uh, when I first got it was essentially illegal. I, I wasn't supposed to be there but it was a known spot that we would go to and throw some mud. And honestly, the trail was probably, 
hundred yards long. That was the best one, you know, and uh, we found, we made pads and found ways to get through it in you know a few hours to extend the fun. But that was the experience. So when, when I started seeing overlanding, especially people in my area that had overlanding rigs, I'm like, this is the stupidest thing because um, there's nowhere to, to continuously move for more than, you know, maybe a couple hours. There's a, a little bit like a state park um, where you could do that a little bit. Um, now to me, so like, that's funny that you guys say, you know, oh yeah, it's just going out for a weekend in California. That to me is overlanding. That is, if you can go on a trail for more than an hour, you're overlanding because that's just amazing to me. Um, or at least that was my perspective then. Now it's like, okay, we, now that I live in Michigan, we actually have a little bit of this where you can spend a whole day on the trail, which is crazy. Um, but yeah, it does target the, the, the current culture targets a lot of, a lot of money, but the idea, cause the closest trip I did to this, to what Chris said is you come to a fork in the road and you go, let's just go. The closest I did to that was in like a Volkswagen Jetta recently with my friend, we drove from the middle of the country to San Diego where he was stationed for the military. And the goal was we had X amount of days to get there cause I was flying home but the in-between, we didn't know where we were going. We didn't care. And that was a really, really cool experience. It was only on paved roads, obviously, because it was a sedan. Jetta. <laughs> but actually, we did get it stuck in the snow. That's a whole other story. But, <laughs> but that, that freedom of, you know, I have everything with me that I'm going to need. In our case, it was a cell phone that could get us an Airbnb because it's the modern era. But, you know, the idea of I have everything that... And, you know, I have a freedom of uh, time was just such a cool freeing experience. And to be able to do that off road, I, I hope I can someday. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, crazy. From where I'm at, I can take four or five days and drive to Moab and spend less than 50 miles on pavement. Mm-hmm. Legally. Legally. Yeah. 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 So I, I want to let me throw something that, out there. Sorry, go ahead, Rick. I say that to me is overlanding right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tracy, that's a beautiful thing. I'm in the same boat. I can drive about 25 miles away and get to Colorado almost on entirely dirt roads, which we're blessed to be out here in the West with all that stuff. But I wanted to touch on your comment, Tracy and Liam, mm-hmm. about the overland guys. And I say this with authority because obviously I was the editor of the journal for seven years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all the stuff that's available from max tracks to rooftop tents to all the other little goodies and gizmos. Um, I love those guys. And you know why? Because something that you said earlier, Rick, it's your Jeep. Do what you want with it. You know, I mean, they're excited about getting into something new. They're excited about getting off and going somewhere they've never been, even if it's just for a day trip. So it's like, I don't have any problem at all. They're awesome. And they help, you know, keep this whole industry going. And, you know, and and it's deal you know i have nothing against it but that that's where i see their target demographic is you know a higher income level and i understand it and they're that that's their niche but for me you know i've got a tarp and a blanket and a piece of rope and i can go do the same thing i may not be nearly as comfortable well, and you also, have to look at it, you also have to look at it on the flip side is 
they're also targeting a lower income level than people who buy $100,000 campers or buy, you know, $200,000 motorhomes, but still want to get that camping experience with all the necessities of home. So, you know, you can take your Dodge Ram and put a little rack on it and a rooftop tent and a few of the other necessities and have this almost the same experience as somebody with that 30, 40, 50, $200,000 camper. Um, so it, it, it not only hits higher income than like the base base, the guy that's just going to grab a, a hammock and go have some fun, you know, and a hot dog stick. But, you know, it's also completely different than the people that buy the big campers and everything else. Um, I mean, that's originally why I built my, or I made the one conversion to Frankenbrook to be kind of an overland rig where I did the fridge and I did the rooftop tent and, you know, a couple of the other things because my kids wanted to go camping. And sometimes it's a big pain in the butt to hook up the camper and go camping. Um, so it was, it was very inexpensive to take one vehicle and turn it into an overland rig versus buying the modern camping equivalent, which would be, you know, at least a $30,000 camper. Um, so it, that's one of the cool parts about overlanding or the new overlanding is that you can do it on the cheap compared to the really expensive stuff. Um, and you can get a little bit more off of the state campground. Um, and then we have to ask is living in a hundred thousand or more dollar motorhome really camping? Not at all. But they, but, I don't know. They call it yeah, I mean, it isn't to me, but it says it is. Oh, with, with your satellite, not, with your satellite dishes and your TV and your video games, I'm out there because I want to disconnect from those things. I want to be off the grid. I don't want cell service. I don't want to hear sirens. I don't want to hear the neighbor's dog barking. I want to hear the coyotes howling or a mountain lion or the birds, the, the river, whatever. I'm there because I need to reset my mind. I need to get away from the hustle, the bustle, the, the leash of life. <laughs> the leash of life. Hang on. I have to write that down. <laughs> so tracy but i mean for everybody actually i mean the people that go out and they camp in their motorhomes or their their rvs or their trailers yeah sure they're camping it's just it's relative to your own definition of what camping is if, you know um so i mean i'm fine with those people but i did have a, another couple of curious points one was about khaki who said something about khaki i did so, for those for the watching the podcast i'm going to we're going to have a couple of pictures of like me. I've been wearing that stuff forever and like wearing a safari hat. since mm -hmm. way Can before like the overland thing came out, like, like way back. Um, so actually started getting self-conscious of it when I was the editor at the journal. They're like, Oh, you got the uniform on now. Uh -huh. uh -huh. like, Dude, that shows how little you know about me. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> Chris was khaki before khaki was cool. cool. Exactly. Oh, no. The British made khaki cool. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, look at the LRDG guys. I mean, they baggy. had cargo shorts, khaki. 
drive around in flat fenders. All right. There is not much cooler than that. All right. Okay. Yeah. So they have machine guns too. Lots of pockets. Yeah. So my dad, um, Dean a geologist, the field geologist, he always wore khaki, tan, the the whole get because that was what field geologists wore out in the field. And they were called field clothes. Go figure, right? So yeah, that's how I grew up. So to me, that's totally normal. And yeah, I, I had to actually stop wearing a lot of khaki because everybody started wearing it and bought a rooftop tent. <laughs> and they all started getting safari hats. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, mine disappeared on a Fryburger trip, but I did have a pretty good one in Australia. Yes, you did. Yeah. Hey, hey so there's another thing on overlanding, and, and, and it's that mentality thing. So I led my four-wheel drive club up on a trip up into northern Nevada, and we got a whole bunch of newer people to four-wheeling and cheaping, and and one of them asked me uh, at the at our meeting, is this a four-wheel drive trip or an overlanding trip? What kind of what kind of terrain are we going to run into? <laughs> like, I had to think about it for a second, and I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, is it going to be difficult? Or and I said, well, listen. We're going to places I haven't been to for like up canyons. I haven't been there for like 10 years. So you may need lockers. You may not. It may be easy, maybe completely washed out and we'll have to turn around and go back. So I was like, you know, the idea of this trip is that we're going to go into places that we haven't been to or never been to. And we'll see when we get there, what kind of equipment. So, you know, be ready. That, that sounds to me more like an expedition. No, it was just a little, <laughs> it was just weekend of exploring in Nevada. Uh, all right, uh, it, it sounds like an adventure. <laughs> what, whatever you call it, overlanding, car camping, disconnecting from the hustle and bustle of the rat race. What, whatever you call it, exactly. Just enjoy it. Do it safely. Do it responsibly. Stay on the trail if there is one there. Don't cut a new one if there isn't. Absolutely. And and I think with that, episode seven is going to come to a close. Yeah, yeah. Thanks you everybody for participating and being with us. Uh, I think we got a, a week's worth seven, right? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Uh, podcast. And I'm looking forward to the rest of them. So, with that being said, thanks again, everybody. Thanks for watching, and don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Later, nice. everybody. See everybody. Bye. <laughs> On the next episode of The Ganjeepin Show, we'll have lockers before light bars where we will answer some of our fans' questions. Willies versus Wrangler. Rick Payway faces off against the new guys, old school versus modern technology. And Trailside, where we will discuss some of our favorite trails and trips we'd like to take. Thanks for joining us on The Ganjeepin Show. We'll see you at the next episode. We're all Jeep all the time. <laughs>